Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step -step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Nine out of ten doctors agree. We'll be right back. No one's going to escape the long arm of the law. On Genealogy, a Roddenberry podcast. Episode one, Defense Plant Gambling. Welcome to Mission Log Genealogy. I'm Earl Green. And I'm Norman Lau. This is a Roddenberry podcast, but... Not a podcast about that one show Gene Roddenberry did, or any one show, really. Each week, we're tracking the early career of Gene Roddenberry, television writer, at a time when that was a very, very new and rapidly evolving job description. Was Gene always working his forward-looking worldview into his early TV scripts, or did his morals, meanings, and messages evolve over time? What stories was he telling, and at what stage of evolution was the medium of television at the time? And along the way, we might even run into scripts Gene wrote that went unsold, stories that went untold, unseen for decades, and unheard of until now. This week, we kick off Gene's stint on the 1950s series Mr. District Attorney with the episode Defense Plant Gambling. Before Earl comes back with trivia, here's how you can reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on Twitter and Facebook at missionlogpod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And please remember, your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. Now, I did promise that you were going to come back with trivia after we did that. But before we get into trivia, we already have a correction that is going to have to, you know, change our own history books, even though we've only had one introductory episode. Yeah, we got many encouraging messages from Mission Log listeners enthusiastic about genealogy, along with one hot tip out of nowhere. Now, last week, I said that the first show created by Gene to make it past the pilot stage, Wrangler, was lost to time except for paperwork because it was shot on videotape. Then I got an email pointing me in the direction of the list of preserved and restored TV programs at the UCLA Library's Film and Television Department. And sure enough, there it is listed in their holdings, the first episode of Wrangler, specifically the copy that aired on KTLA in 1960. But all anyone knew about that show without looking at it, without watching it, was that, you know, this is an obscure episode of an obscure short-lived Western that starred Jason Evers. You know, the Gene connection probably was not known to whoever archived that. This is a fantastic find. This is a piece of TV history that's been sliding under the radar for over six decades, sitting across town at UCLA. So if you listen to uh, 
our introductory show, you know, Rod uh, had a request for anyone out there who's going to be listening to this podcast, you know, and uh, who may have more anecdotes, tidbits of information, anything in your archives uh, that we may not have access to or, you know, we just don't know about. Because, again, this is a deep dive historical study into Gene's works. So make sure that you... Stay in contact with us, uh, missionlog at roddenberry.com, and let us know if you would like to share any of that information. Of course, we'll credit you on that, and this will just help fill in those those blank spots in our own archive and make the most comprehensive historical archive of Gene Roddenberry's work possible. And now, I promise you, and now, it is time for Earl Green with this week's trivia. This was, according to IMDb, the fifth episode of Mr. District Attorney on TV. But Mr. District Attorney had already been a feature film and a radio drama series at this point. In some cases, scripts from the radio series were ported over to the TV series early on, but this episode was written specifically for television. It also happens to be the first TV script sold by Gene Roddenberry, though it's credited to Robert Wesley who was also serving as a technical advisor on various police and law-oriented shows for Civ television programs. Now, if you're wondering why Gene was using a pen name, at the time, he was still an officer in the Los Angeles Police Department, working primarily in the Information Department, occasionally writing press releases and speeches for the Chief of Police. His technical advice on police procedure, as well as the scripts he wrote for the show, were strictly moonlighting projects done outside of work hours. The script for Defense Plant Gambling was sold in late 53, the beginning of Gene's writing career. And while a lot of his early output for Ziv, the makers of Mr. District Attorney, was carried out under that pseudonym, his first TV script sale started the countdown clock to the end of his career in the LAPD because he figured out pretty quickly TV writing pays better. Like the majority of Ziv Television Program's output, Mr. District Attorney was a syndicated show, part of the first major gold rush of first-run syndication in American TV. Frederick Ziv had originally founded the Ziv Company in the 40s to syndicate radio programming on a station-by-station basis, and it was there that Mr. District Attorney began as a radio program. When commercial television began, with the networks as spin-offs of the existing radio networks, Frederick Ziv naturally saw enough promise in the nascent TV industry to expand into making television shows, especially since the TV networks were fighting with their sister radio networks for funding. At the dawn of commercial TV in America, the networks could only afford to produce a very limited amount of programming and often took inspiration from radio programming. This meant that there were TV stations popping up from coast to coast in need of a full day of programming that the networks were not providing. Enter Ziv television programs. They tried to cover every genre, and they were a huge player in that first wave of American TV syndication. Other Ziv shows included Bat Masterson, The Cisco Kid, Highway Patrol, I Led Three Lives, Science Fiction Theater, and Sea Hunt. And Gene would write for several of the Ziv shows and tried to sell scripts to others that he wound up not selling to. Whether you consider Next Gen or Earth Final Conflict to be Gene's final writing credit on TV, he began and ended his career in first-run syndication. Since the show was syndicated, and these were the days before broadcasting via satellite, because actually in April 1954, we're three and a half years away from satellites, period. Sputnik hasn't been launched yet. The internet is crawling with air dates for these shows that may only apply to one city in the U.S., 
whoever was actually keeping records or kept newspaper or TV guide clippings. And for context, TV Guide celebrated its first anniversary in April 1954, so it's just barely there in time to contribute to the historical record. So bear with us, there are a lot of different sources presenting a lot of different air dates and orders out there for the episodes. Since syndication at this point in TV history meant film cans entrusted to the gentle graces of the Postal Service, all of those dates could be right in different cities. And sometimes with this early material, there are no dates. Specifically, in the interest of presenting an accounting of the story that is as close as possible to what aired, we are operating off of the final revised script draft dated March 2nd, 1954. But for now, David Bryan, the final radio voice of Mr. District Attorney, was on our screens as District Attorney Paul Garrett, Champion of the Law. Hey, Mac! I've got a sure winner this time. Lady Lee in the fourth. I'm sorry I didn't see you. See you payday. I, I look for you honest. Lady Lee in the fourth, ten bucks to win. It's a sure thing. It'll square us up. You're into us. Sixty bucks. We want it now. Now? I can't raise sixty bucks this time of the month. Look, please, take this bet. Lady Lee, it'll square up here. Let me help you. You lousy little four-flusher. We want 60 bucks. We want it now. If I let a punk like you get away with it, half of the plant would be playing on our money. I don't know where to get it. I don't, I don't know where. Borrow it from the credit union. I got the limit there. Hmm. I've been losing regular. You know that. All right, steal it then. I don't care where you get it, just so long as you have it. By closing time, I'll be waiting for you. Mr. District Attorney. When crime rears its head, District Attorney Paul Garrett is the man who organizes the law enforcement effort to stop it in its tracks and bring the criminals to justice. Defense Plant Gambling. Mr. District Attorney himself, Paul Garrett, is having one of those days where he's really teed off. Well, okay, actually, he's just come in from the golf course. As he knocks the golf green off his shoes at the clubhouse, he trades some friendly banter with Thad Cartwright, president of the National Aircraft Plant across town. Paul laments the fact that his duties of upholding the law only allow him to get in a nine-hole game here and there. Cut to the repair shop at National Aircraft. A mousy worker named McCauley gets his chops busted by Mr. Field, the plant manager, for looking at his racing sheet and picking his horses while he's on the clock. It's just for fun, Mac assures him. It's not like he's betting on them or anything. Spoiler, Macaulay's betting on them all right, and he tries to place his latest bet with the guy who runs the lunchroom, a tough guy named Stubb Zarat. Zarat has strict rules for taking bets. You don't wave money in his face during work hours. It has to wait until after you've punched out. And you better settle up on payday. That's something Mac hasn't been good about. He's in the whole 60 bucks with Zarat, and yet he wants to place another bet. No deal. Zarat makes it very clear. Macaulay owes him 60 bucks today. Or punched out is going to take on a whole new meaning. Mr. Field's office. Mr. Field has a visitor. It's his boss, Mr. Cartwright, wondering why the plant is falling behind schedule on delivering aircraft, especially when it has a lucrative contract with the U.S. Air Force. Field seems a bit clueless, and Cartwright thinks there's a morale problem. That's when Macaulay abruptly shows up in Field's office, wanting to tender his resignation effective immediately. Oh, look, a morale problem. 
Field tries to hush Macaulay, uh, the guy who signs our checks is right here. This isn't a good time. But Mr. Cartwright is very interested to hear why a rank-and-file worker like Macaulay is ready to walk right now. But Macaulay doesn't want to get into it. Finally, he's desperate. Mac just wants 60 bucks from his final paycheck. His bosses can keep the rest and he'll be on his way. But he can't even swing that deal. And Macaulay just walks off the job and into the parking lot where someone is waiting for him. At the DA's office, Paul Garrett has only just walked into his office when he gets a call from Mr. Cartwright. Someone was found beaten pretty badly in the parking lot, and Cartwright thinks there may be more to it, something that the police need to look into. Garrett puts Assistant DA Lloyd Bailey on the case. But is there a case? Macaulay's in critical condition and isn't saying a word about who beat him to a pulp. As Bailey says, he can't or won't describe his assailant. And it's not an isolated case. There's been a string of similar incidents at National Aircraft, and the victims never seem to have anything to say about who did it. And Cartwright was in the dark the whole time. Apparently, Mr. Field never thought this was important enough to mention. Bailey has, however, found evidence that someone on the grounds is running a betting pool. There are numerous signs that betting is a popular pastime at the plant, and someone's making some serious bank. Bailey doesn't have enough evidence to take to court, but he's convinced a crime syndicate has taken over national aircraft from inside the betting pool. Garrett decides to call on his old friend, Sergeant Riker, in the intelligence division of the local police department. As they look into the possibility that organized crime has gained a local foothold, Riker points to alarming assault and murder statistics from a nearby town. While his contacts come up empty on big-name criminals operating nearby, he does think that the syndicate would have made contact with someone who's already local, someone like Stubb Zarat, who runs the concession card at National Aircraft, and already has one hell of a rap sheet. Garrett and Bailey descend on the National Aircraft plant looking for the raw material to make their case, and that means dumpster diving, trying to fish evidence of organized gambling out of the trash before it conveniently finds its way to the incinerator on the company grounds. And they find plenty of it. Surratt's been the bookie for bets on everything from boxing to basketball to horse racing. But is it enough to hang a case on? Not yet. Next, Garrett and Bailey pay a visit to Mr. Field and Miss Thornberry, his secretary. Cartwright's there, too, and he's impatient for some kind of action to solve his problems. But there won't be any arrests or raids today. Garrett tells Cartwright that if they don't find solid leads for a case, then the problems at National Aircraft are an internal management problem that the DA's office has no involvement in. Speaking of not wasting the DA's time, Garrett cuts to the chase and interviews Stubb Zarat. He and Bailey search Zarat and his food cart and... nothing. Sure, Zarat tells him, there's some friendly betting going on here, but strictly penny-ante stuff, nothing worth the DA's attention. They go through Zarat's notebook, which is empty. So is his truck out in the parking lot. Somebody tipped him off. And the moment no one's around to listen, Zarat calls that somebody on the phone, who wants to meet with him tonight at the usual place. The usual place is Zarat's place, and it's quite a pad for someone who runs the food car at an airplane factory, and someone who's got a rap sheet like Zarat's. He's living high on the hog. There's a knock at the door. It's Mr. Field, the plant manager. He wants to know who's really calling the shots, who is on the org chart above Zarat. Field's getting worried. 
The cops and the DA are nosing around. Surratt's busy making a big show of working out the whole time Field is talking to him, just to make sure Field knows Surratt could wipe the floor with him. While Field's worried that they're about to get busted, Surratt wants to expand the gambling ring into other national aircraft plants and facilities. And it's clear that the bemuscled Surratt is in charge here. Field may have a sign on his desk that says manager, but he's not the boss. Surratt answers to and speaks for a crime syndicate. The next day, a telephone repairman reports to the National Aircraft Plant. A telephone repairman who looks an awful lot like Sergeant Riker. He's working undercover for Paul Garrett, and he's there to bug the phones with Cartwright's full cooperation. Garrett and Bailey look over Zarat's file. There's quite a bit there, though his marriage records turn out to be almost as interesting as his criminal record. Put a pen in that. Riker's phone tap turns up one piece of information immediately. Zarat and Mr. Field are in this together. That's interesting, perhaps incriminating, but it's not a prosecution witness. Garrett needs more. He has a bright idea. Go ahead and arrest Surratt and hold him without charges for three days, which means he'll miss payday. He'll miss taking everyone's gambling money, and he'll miss delivering that money to his bosses. Holding him without charges for 72 hours is a gamble, but it does pay off. Guess who's ready to testify now that Surratt's behind bars? Macaulay. He's nervous about it, but he's also talked some of the other guys who have run afoul of Zarat's criminal operation and his temper into testifying. Now, Zarat's facing charges. But Paul Garrett isn't done with Zarat yet. He probably needs some fresh air, so it's time for a visit to National Aircraft. In the manager's office, Mr. Cartwright is waiting along with Mr. Field and Ms. Thornberry, and Garrett drops the news on everyone. Zarat was working with Field the whole time. Field fesses up on the spot. But who else was in on it, Garrett wonders. Field doesn't want to answer. He'll be a dead man if he does. But Garrett pushes for the answer. That's when Zarat tries to get to Field before he can talk. But Paul Garrett isn't just Mr. District Attorney. He's Mr. Gut Punch, too, and he takes Zarat down. Now that he's getting his butt handed to him, Zarat offers to turn state's evidence. His handler from the crime syndicate was... Miss Thornberry? She also happens to be Mrs. Zarat... But the DA points out that since Zarat has moved from state to state, she's not the only Mrs. Zarat. Mr. Cartwright is stunned. How did this operation take root within his business? For Mr. District Attorney, this case is in the bag. The only thing left is to put it before a judge and a jury. The end. Well, for dissecting the very first unread, unseen script for Gene Roddenberry's, or I should say Robert Wesley's Mr. District Attorney, that was a great recap, Earl. And just like Mission Log, we're going to go through like very similar format. So we're going to go into observations. And is it me or did you have like an interesting time trying to find observations from a script as opposed to, say, look, what John and I do, finding observations from, say, actors and performances and music cues and, you know, props and all that kind of stuff, which don't exist at all in the kind of format that we're covering. Well, that's that's interesting because the script is for a 50s crime drama script. There's there's a lot going on here and there's a lot mm-hmm. to unpack. And, you know, we're going to be unpacking it in the course of this show. But the, uh, you know, the settings, the stage directions, you know, it's all very detailed. And, you know, I think we'll get into that. But, you know, for now, just thinking about it, this is 1954. 
the stage and setting directions in the script say, it is a large aircraft manufacturing plant. Beyond the building, we can see completed aircraft, you know, sitting out on the apron. And I know you have to scout locations for that. But if I'm the producer of this show, every successive word in that description makes me break out in even more of a Mm. cold sweat. Now, I did see a little note. It's on like page three of the script that says that the aircraft plant interiors and exteriors were shot at McCulloch Motors. Now, I did some digging to try to find out what and where that might be. And it seems likely that this was McCulloch Aircraft Engines, which moved its manufacturing operations from Milwaukee, Wisconsin to L.A. in 1946. And McCulloch did indeed have a contract to produce engines for the U.S. government. Okay, do you think that's something that Gene knew about, or is that something that he needed to research in order to make it a little bit more legitimate when he's talking about something like this in the script? It's possible that he knew about it. Keep in mind that he was also an aviator. This is actually exactly the sort of thing that he would probably know about. But, you know, this is also why Location Scout is a job description in Hollywood. Interestingly, McCulloch is now, the brand name is now not known for engines for airplanes. It's now known for chainsaws. But, you know, we've both seen Raiders of the Lost Ark. Either way, he could take someone's head off. Scenes 23 through 28 in the script, you know, Macaulay is hauling the mail out to the parking lot. He is trying to get out of there. He has not negotiated a good exit for himself or his 60 bucks. That's good stuff. You know, there are camera directions, so on. It's really tense. It's words on a page. But it's really, it's really vividly done. And this is where you really start to get the idea. This is why Gene has broken into this business because, you know, there's an okay script and then there's a really good one. And, you know, these words on a page paint a really vivid picture. Yeah, I'm thinking, you know, when I'm reading through the script, it's a great resource for us to have when we're breaking these down for our notes. But there is so much detail. And I think that even for like 1950 standards, maybe there needed to be more detail than, say, broader stroke type scripts for today because you don't have, I guess you don't have the luxury of like the technology to be able to fill in the gaps. So a writer has to be very specific, not just about like the camera direction, which I'll get into later on in some of my questions, but in in a way where almost everything that they say or write has to set a tone because, you know, you have this physical confrontation, not only in the physicality, but in kind of like the attitude between Macaulay and Zarat. You know, you have to establish that really early because it's almost kind of like a David and Goliath scenario and who's going to be championing David in this case. In this case, it's going to be Macaulay. So that stuff is is very prominent on the page. And I'm wondering if that's just because a writer has a very specific vision in mind and how much of that is going to influence, you know, how everything like falls into place. Like you said, set location, costuming, et cetera, et cetera. This is so early in television and and really filmmaking in general that you're not doing anything that's not in camera. Yeah, there's no fixing it in post. So I could see where a writer would want to be extremely specific. So I was like, okay, hey, director, this is important. This is a tell. Somebody's reaction is a tell. It's a clue. Emphasize it and make sure the audience focuses on it. But, you know, even names are important, and that brings us to Sergeant Merle Riker in the Intelligence Division at the Police Department. Obviously, 
Uh, this is the ancestor of someone who will go on to great things. And this is Riker with a Y, not Riker with an I. However, in the earliest drafts of the Next Gen series Bible, Riker's name was spelled with a Y. So now I want to know who was the real Riker that spawned this long line of Rikers and Rikers in Gene's writing career. Was this an old buddy from the war? A fellow airline pilot? Now I'm really curious because obviously this was somebody and who inspired this. Well, I know that, correct me if I'm wrong, and I'm I'm probably going to be wrong because I'm just pulling this from memory, but I know that Gene like dropped in character names in his other series in a way to reach out to people that he lost touch with after World War II. What, wasn't Khan Union Singh named after a friend of his? Yes, he was. Yes, he was. So maybe this is one of those opportunities where he lost touch with somebody and maybe they're watching TV and maybe they hear a version of their name phonetically and maybe they might get in touch with him again. That's kind of, it's an interesting thing. That's like the Facebook of like 1954. Yeah, it is. Okay, so we have an expository video in scene 40 where Paul Garrett, you know, he's talking over the scene. It's kind of his captain's log, really, if you think about it. But more to the point is very, very dragnet. Might as well borrow from the best. And and now I hear, well, not, you know, the actor who played Joe, uh, Joe Friday, but I hear Leslie Nielsen doing the voiceover for <laughs> for Paul Garrett, <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah, like the beginning of Police Squad. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, like he's driving to the crime scene and he's got his laundry in the back seat. So in scene 85, I, I'm trying to work out the wording on this. Maybe I'm misreading it. it the wording makes it sound like the recording from mm-hmm. Riker's phone tap has been pressed on a record. Like vinyl. Yeah, that's that's what it reads like. And I'm, am I misreading this? Should I be holding out for the 8-track or, you know, the Mobile <laughs> Fidelity Sound Lab remastered CD with the added liner notes? It's, I'm, I'm thinking this, surely this means a tape. And what I'm reading is record and not record. But this is one of these things that you run into just reading a script, where it's just there. there is some wiggle room for misinterpretation. So I'm, I'm holding out for the 180-gram remaster on colored vinyl. The heavy vinyl, for sure. Yeah, yeah, exactly. for our turntables. You know, but that's a, that's an interesting thing because when we're reading scripts, we're reading like word and not uh, emphasis. So you know, bug on record or bug on record. So it's an interesting thing, and and you know, we're going to be learning a lot of like these weird kind of like these these idioms and pronunciations and all of these different uh, the, the vernacular of the time because. Last time I checked, because we're so young-looking, you and I, Earl, uh, we weren't born in that era. So we don't really know, like, again, the slang of the time. I mean, I've learned a lot, like, along the way so far. And, and going through the script, there are just certain things that... So here's one thing I thought was interesting. Since our listeners can't see the script that we're working on, there's a bunch of different colored pages on on the uh, on the script that we're studying. Now, Mr. District Attorney, this is episode five. The script's cover page... It's kind of like this yellowish, mustardy kind of page, but it's designated TV9B and not, say, episode 5. What does that mean? Like, for, for all of our viewers out there, our listeners, if they saw this, why wouldn't it say, like, episode 5? Okay, so I have, I have some speculation. I have some guesses here. 9B, I'm guessing, is probably a production code and maybe indicative of the order in which things were filmed rather than the order that they were broadcast. 
But again, I'm just speculating wildly there. And we're relying on what seems like a very incomplete record of something from startlingly recent in our history. But, you know, I don't think the serious study of media is something that was happening in 54. It is something that happens now. But in 54, I don't think anything was thinking to keep track of this stuff. Now, in the pre-satellite days, syndication frequently relied on a system called bicycling which meant that films or tapes would be shipped to one station and they would air that show and then they would ship it to the next station until that show reached the end of the chain and was then shipped back to the program distributor. This might have been the fifth one shown wherever someone was jotting down records and that's what has wound up on IMDb, which, you know, just a reminder, as authoritative as IMDb is, it is still crowdsourced. It might have been the seventh one shown two states away. And I know this because the first TV station I worked at, we were still bicycling three-quarter-inch U-Matic videotapes to and from other stations, and this was in the early to mid-90s. FedExing tapes around the country was cheaper for the distributor than booking an hour or two of satellite time on Telstar 301. In 1954, of course, you don't have satellites, so even if you struck multiple copies of the film, this was almost the only way to do it. That's just amazing thinking about it. I mean, do you think bicycling at one point in time, they actually did it physically like bicycle, like, uh, you know, source material from like one side of the studio to the other, that kind of thing? That is probably how the term got started. Yeah. The, you know, your gophers going across the studio lot. Jeez. I can't even imagine. I mean, it's just like, wow. Going back to naming, because, you know, we talked about Riker and how important that is. I was thinking about the actual name, Paul Garrett. You know, if you looked at maybe the way they used to do the the you know, door signatures you know on those glass doors like hand painted it would either be Paul Garrett attorney at law you know or district attorney or P Garrett and I was like do you think that Gene maybe took a page from history and actually named him in uh, in a way from say Pat Garrett the famous lawman who uh, allegedly killed Billy the Kid because you know back in the back in oh my gosh. Forgive me for saying this, folks, because it is back in the day. But, you know, in the 1950s, you know, there were like basically three formats of shows. I mean, if you don't count the news, you had military combat shows, you had Westerns and you had police procedurals. So, you know, Westerns are a huge thing. Pat Garrett being one of the most famous lawmen of history. I think it would kind of lend itself to this lawman of, uh, of, of Gene's story. What do you think? I I think you're onto something there. I hadn't even thought of that, but yeah, I could see there are a few episodes of Mr. District Attorney on YouTube. It's just that none of them are the ones that Gene wrote. So we could actually go and check this out and and circle back to this to the next show, but you know, as prevalent as westerns were at that time. Yeah, it's kind of like it's kind of like the Blues Brothers, you know. We we have two radio formats in this town, country and western. Mhm. <laughs> You know, and anyone who grew up in the era that Gene grew up in, you know, was practically raised on Westerns. You have to keep in mind, this stuff was still in reruns when I was a kid, and I'm sure when you were a kid. Yeah, I think there's a very good case for Pat Garrett being the inspiration for Paul Garrett, especially since you have to keep in mind, Paul Garrett didn't have a name until this TV series. On yep. the radio, he was Mr. District Attorney because, you know, you just didn't have time to really flesh out a character for him. That is still so interesting. You know, um, going back to the script and some of the technical stuff behind what we're looking at. So 
I mentioned earlier that there were like different colored pages. Uh, like I said, the script was a mustard yellow, but the interior pages in this script, and I haven't looked at all of the script for this script, they were like like a light blue and some were white. And the first four pages of this script were light blue, and then there were some white pages, and then pages 14, 16, 17, 19, yes, I counted them all, 32, 33, 38, 39, 39A, and pages 40 through 44, that takes us to the end of the script, were also blue. That's a question for you, Earl, but I wanted like just kind of like put a few more observations in here for, you know, for context. So page 1B of this script is the only page that I noticed that had like three lines and then the rest of the page was blank. And then I was just wondering if this was like an editing or formatting mistake or just completing like the scenes between 1A and 1B because the next page is two. And then there's this weird thing. It's the only page that I saw that had this omission that was corrected in pencil on supposedly what was a finished script. And it, there was a, it was on page 16, the bottom of the page was in pencil in cursive handwriting. And it said 37, what I was assume would be scene 37. And it just says omitted. So because the next page after that, uh, page 17 starts with shot 38. So I'm just wondering if that was a mistake or if somebody in the production office has said, no, nah, just scrap that. We can't shoot that day. Did you see any of those? strange consistencies inconsistencies but let's go all the way back to the 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 colored scripts pages first because that's that to me just seems like why okay well that's that's actually common practice today different colored script pages there's usually a sort of a color code to them and they are usually the most recently revised pages of the script and each production has its own color code as to which pages are the most recent You'd hear stories of, you know, scripts hitting the stage that had been so poured over, so rewritten, that it had all the colors of the rainbow twice. And that may also account for what seemed like these partial pages. It kind of reminds me of old IBM hardware manuals, you know, this page intentionally left blank. So you may have scenes that were rewritten, shortened, condensed, maybe even in the process of rewriting them, it was like, oh, we just realized we don't need that scene. Or maybe we just realized that this was going to give away the twist at the end and let's just eliminate it completely. Yeah. I just find uh, the whole process of it, like just interesting because, you know, from my experience, I've never really done kind of like script breakdowns before. And now we're going all the way back to these archives. So I'm sure there's a logic to it. I just don't see it or really, you know, have the education to understand, you know, what all that means. But speaking of education, there are certain things that you come across when you're reading something from this time period that were just like, what does that exactly mean? You know, you have, again, slang, like vernacular, you know, tone of the time. Zarat calls Macaulay a four flusher. And that kind of, that gave me like one of those mental double takes. I'm like, what does that exactly mean? So, you know, again, Gene has, you know, all of this uh, to to draw from, you know, his own personal experiences. Maybe he used this phrase himself. I looked at vocabulary.com for what the definition of four flusher means. And it said, quote, anyone who plays poker knows five cards in a single suit, whether it's clubs, diamonds, hearts, you know, or uh, spades. That's called a flush. What happens when you only have only four of that suit and one off suit? Well, nothing happens because it means absolutely nothing. So a four flusher is a person who is bluffing at cards and or is a con man or, you know, it's just somebody who's he's riding a lot on something that doesn't have anything at all at stake. And that's kind of like what Macaulay was doing. You know, he's just 
you know, well, you know, let's go into another, I don't know, derogatory word that Zarat calls uh, Macaulay on page 39, calls him a Welsher. Now you have Zarat, basically this physically imposing guy, looking over Macaulay the entire time, getting into his face, calling him a liar and a Welsher. But Welsher, though, is a little bit more derogatory. Yeah, the um, Welsh, the whole Welsh um, discrimination thing persisted like decades after this, especially if you were watching shows from the UK. It's a very classist attitude. You know, it's a it's geographical discrimination. But, you know, where you, where you have classist attitudes, not classicist, but classist, you're probably a very short throw from racist attitudes, sexist attitudes, other discriminatory attitudes. And, you know, especially in TV shows in the UK, this whole thing of equating being of Welsh birth with being untrustworthy or lazy is just, it's wrong. But it kept on showing up because it was this culturally acceptable whipping boy that no one had corrected yet. And that sort of stuff doesn't get corrected until enough people raise their voices to change it. You know, um, one of the things also I really like, and I mentioned this earlier when it comes to a writer of this time, the writer is specifically calling out certain scenes, close-up, close-up two, long shot, medium shot. Those are usually things I always thought that were associated with like director's notes. So in this era... You have a writer that's calling out specific scenes and they're working with a director, producer, editor. You know, you have all these people. Uh, I I said before in our uh, introductory show, it takes a village to create a show like this. But it seems that because the budget is so restrictive that you would think if this is just a formulaic streamlining of the production itself or did the writer really say, look, I have a very specific vision in mind. I want this shot to be like this because I see it in my head this way. I want these words to be spoken this way. I want the color tone and palette to be done this way. I want all of this stuff because I'm translating what I'm seeing in my head onto the written page. And anything after that would be a distillation, a dilution of, of my vision. So did the directors and editors at the time, do you think, do you really think that they followed those notes? Or is it just like, yeah, thanks for those, you know, the recommendations or the suggestions, but we'll go this way. Or did they just not have time for it? Or did the writers, you know, the, did they lean on the writers saying, please be specific so we don't have to think about this at all. Let's just wham, bam, produce it and put it on the air so we can get our advertising revenue? Yes. <laughs> I, I, <laughs> all I, of that, yes. <laughs> yes to all. Um, I, I think there, there's probably a mixture of of all of the above these shows that ziv cranked out they were filmed fast and cheap and it was not uncommon for one director to be doing a whole season of just that show like this guy he directs mr district attorney this other guy over here he's directing i led three lives you know you didn't have directors changing shows because you know it's kind of you're part of the company and in the interest of just keeping everything streamlined and moving along under its own momentum, we're just going to have this one guy direct that whole show. Now, if you are directing back-to-back-to-back-to-back episodes, prep time just melts away and disappears altogether. It's all just camera time. There's no prep time anymore. and There's no time for storyboards, probably, with that kind of pace. So 
directing from the script is probably a bit of a help in that regard because the writer is basically letting the director and the cinematographer know, you know, focus on this, focus on this person's reaction, this person's expression. And, you know, when you're cranking out a show every week without enough time in between to even think about how you're going to distinguish the next episode from this episode, these kinds of script notes are probably at least a little bit helpful. get right back to defense plant gambling after a word from this week's sponsor and that dear listeners is you the conversation continues on discord exclusively for our patreon subscribers norm tell them what they've won well what they've won is uh the opportunity to talk with us your host for mission log genealogy or mission log the standard podcast or a bunch of fans that have a great deal of interest uh, in our discord discussion so what happens is you go to patreon.com slash mission log and then you sign up and then you get exclusive access to our discord and that means also exclusive swag you have early access previews to the podcast including this podcast and all of the other podcasts that we do and exclusive content to the unedited shows so if you think that you like what you're listening to now Wait till you see like our live, unedited, unexpurgated content exclusive just for you. And we also have weekly long discussions about different topics uh, that we do that are actually hosted by several members on Discord. We have the After Dark discussion, which is covering our uh, drop of the week for Mission Log podcasts. We also have Contiki, which is our convention chat. We have Trek of the Week which is where we discuss the most recent episode of the most current series. We have Time Enough to Chat, which is a Twilight Zone chat. And we have the Zoclo, where we talk about Babylon 5 with veterans and fans of either their first time watch or the rewatch, which is what we're doing right now. So that and more is available to you once you sign up and subscribe to our Patreon. We actually had the first After Dark for Genealogy. That was that was epic. It, you, we turned out a half-hour podcast uh, we were talking for more than an hour. Now, yeah, there were kind of some detours in there. I think there was something about whether or not Zardoz influenced the costuming for Rocky Horror. But, you know, there were a lot of very smart questions about what we're doing here. And I can't wait for us to be discussing, you know, the actual scripts and actual stories that Gene wrote you know, with a crowd who has never seen them and may have insights that we haven't even thought of. So a big thank you to our most recent Patreon supporters, Joe, Paul, Bridge, Cal, Ali. Thank you all so much for your support. And if you want to join them, hit us up at patreon.com slash mission log. All right, Norman, we found some interesting things to kind of dig our heels into with you know, just how shows were made back then and how different it is from the process now. But now it's time to dig into the story. Let's dig into the words of Gene Roddenberry's first TV script. And we, I remember when we started on this, we weren't sure is the first one going to be kind of a softball. There's stuff to unpack here. Mm -hmm. And buddy just dive in there and, and start because i know you've got some things i know i've got some things there's, there's quite a bit to talk about here well you know again looking at the script and trying to figure out like if if i were not gonna put myself in gene's shoes you know because you know he's the writer and stuff like that. i'm trying to put myself in the shoes of the audience at the time 
But also, the, you know, when we were looking at creating genealogy, you know, we were looking at whether or not we're going to be able to find kind of like these through lines that take us all the way to from, you know, Star Trek, or I should say more all the way to like Gene's final form as like the great bird of the galaxy, you know, retroactively to when he first turned in this script. And are there going to be these these uh, DNA building blocks along the way where we see, oh, there's something that's very topical. There's something that subverted the expectations of the audience, i.e. us, because we read the script. And I think there were. And I think that they're very like in in tone or in tune or in line with like watching Gene Roddenberry like form himself as a, you know, these formative years of his writing career. And I want to um, bring up a certain scene and it's towards the end. And it's, it's strange because I'm like, uh, you know, we'll get into morals and meanings and messages in a second, you know, but it's one of those, that's very provocative. That's very, again, um, subversive. The expectations are subverted at the very end of this script. So going all the way back to when Zarat has been, you know, apprehended and we figure out like who the syndicate's boss is, his boss's boss, not only as the title of this, you know, syndicate's boss, but also as Zarat's or one of Zarat's wives, wives, I should say. Zarat says she's the boss. And Miss Thornberry says sudden, uh, uh, the script says turns suddenly and angrily. She says, go ahead talk muscle man you and your physical culture get knocked on your back and you start crying and then zarat says it's no use baby they've sewed us up this is something that i've seen later on in my experience with gene's career especially with star trek but it's almost like this is the start of perhaps spotlighting these social and cultural issues that were just as pervasive then, some 70 years ago, almost 70 years ago, as they are now. At the end of that exchange, Miss Thornberry calls out Zarat for his quote-unquote physical culture for being nothing more than a sham. These big, strong men, as Zarat was described as in his 30s, dark, built, muscular, using that as influence you know over all of these women that he's married because they also called out his his other marriages in other states which nullify his marriage to miss thornberry this is i think today what we would identify as toxic masculinity you know the idea of this this manliness that perpetuates domination and homophobia and aggression you know so Toxic masculinity involves cultural pressures for men to behave in a certain way and Again, from my understanding, I'm no expert in 1950s culture, but in my understanding, this would definitely be the case for this era. This era. But Thornberry points out, you know, when Paul Garrett and the authorities come, you know, to arrest Zarat and then they break him, this proves that he's exactly as Thornberry describes. And I found that at the end, I was like, that's different. I didn't expect that, you know, from a 1954 script. And I think that you also were kind of like, wow, that is that is a lot deeper and darker of a turn than we would realize coming from 1954. Yeah, I mean, there's the last the last scenes of this script are quite a swing for a crime drama from 1954. It's really ahead of its time because it's like everyone except Mr. Cartwright was dirty in this whole scenario. Poor Mr. Cartwright. And you know, you're kind of like, yeah, but is he? Would these people be trying to gamble to get this extra money if they were being paid enough, maybe? Mm, mm-hmm. You know, and, you know, he is so detached from the day-to-day 
that this whole other operation moved in and took over his business, and he had no clue. You know, does he bear responsibility for that? And so this is not, this is not typical, you know, oh, hey, the, you know, the big man is always right. The man with the money is always right. Now, the man with the money in this show it does not have a clue. And, you know, he could have lost his whole business, could have lost those lucrative contracts, you know, could have had to shut down the air, aircraft plant. So there are so many, so many things to unpack. You know, it's like Mr. Cartwright needs to, uh, you know, come in off the golf course more often, maybe check in with the office. I am well, a little disappointed that Miss Thornberry is working for the mob. Because before that happens, I really kind of liked the setup. There, there, you know, early when Mr. Cartwright shows up and asks Mr. Field to show him the sales figures, production figures, and so on. Uh, she knows better than either one of them what's going on. I, I really hesitate to say that that's any kind of a crack in the glass ceiling, but it does feel like Gene's kind of winking at the audience and saying, you know, we know who does the real work in an office like this. There's so much that is subverted there, you know, from how she treats Zerat whenever, you know, Zerat finally gets his backside handed to him. You know, it kind of goes all the way forward to the captain's woman with her finger on the button of the tantalus device. Mm-hmm. You know, you want me to get rid of want me to get rid of the pointy eared guy for you or not? Women can be women can be the heavies just as much as the guys can. That's a really good point. I, I wanted to um kind of like just unpack a little bit more about that because there are two things that that we're looking at here you know from uh the point of view of say macaulay and with miss thornberry because maybe this was a little bit more prevalent you know if you were a blue collar worker in the 1950s you know or somebody that was at this you know this medium level income family you know or you know working factories or you know just kind of like your your blue collar joe or jill that's you know, working paycheck to paycheck because that's where a, a character like Zarat like really thrives. You know, he's neither that or the other. You know, he's neither kind of like the, you know the mob, uh, like a mob boss. You know, he has you know leaders over him, and he's not kind of like just a foot soldier. And he's someone who's smart. You know, he's he's driven, he's capable, he's given a little bit of authority. But at the same time, though, he's only preying upon the situation that is well in hand, and that is kind of like these almost like poverty stricken levels of people where he can really pray and like, you know, influence because he has a little bit more power. He has a little bit more money. He has a little bit more influence. He has a little bit more threat, you know, involved with his stature and his physicality. And that's one, the the one thing that uh, you and I have been wrestling with uh, before we recorded this is the pronunciation of the name, because we don't really have the specific, you know, pronunciation on script. You know, we, um, Macaulay, uh, Garrett, those are all Riker. Those are all fairly easy to enunciate. You know, we know that's, you know, Thornberry, you know, they're all very, very clear. But Zarat was always kind of like, or Zarat, as we originally were going to say, it's a little bit, you know, obscure. And I'm wondering when they were casting somebody like this, because we don't have... We don't have anyone, you know, in in notes on on casting or actors. So I'm wondering if in the 1950s it would choose someone with a certain ethnicity and a certain look in order for the audience to immediately identify that this person is a villain. So that it takes some of the the attention away from a Miss Thornberry so that when you see kind of like this, again, a certain look 
for this type of woman, you know, secretarial, perhaps white, you know, perhaps petite, and turn her into the heavy, they'd be like, oh, wait a second. We've been looking at this particular man this entire time of a particular culture, of a particular background, of a particular ethnicity that did lean into that type of, you know, toxic masculinity of the physical culture, you know? So do you think that that was the case when it came to writing Zarat? Or that's why his name would be pronounced that way? Like Gene's trying to get us to challenge the stereotype and say, mm -hmm. oh, look, this guy was on someone else's leash the whole time. You know, you thought he was the heavy, and to some extent he was, but really he's just the attack dog. Mm -hmm. yep. yeah, that that could very well be. That could very well be, you know, that he's saying, okay, uh, you know, appearances can be deceiving. And you need to you'd be thinking a little bit further outside the box. By the time we're done with this story, okay, Zarat's obviously going down. You know, he's going he's gonna to snitch. Miss Thornberry is going to go down, and you assume that whoever she is working for is going to get reeled into this. Mr. Field? I don't know if he's going down, but he's ruined. You know, crime doesn't pay, but perhaps the person at the top of the org chart is not who you think they are. Look past the obvious heavy. But at the same time, though, making Miss Thornberry kind of like the, the ultimate villain at the end, does that in any way kind of take the agency away from her as a female character, you know, in, in this office environment where, you know, again, and this is the 1950s where you have kind of like perhaps the, the ethnic Zarat, you know, and the kind of like the, the femme fatale, you know, Miss Thornberry, they're, they're obviously not like the white male hero character that Paul Garrett is. So of course he, in the end is going to be, you know, the champion of law, order and justice, that, to me, still doesn't feel like a Gene Roddenberry type of story, even though the expectations were subverted, the non-white male characters are the ones that are still, and even like the shady businessmen, they're still the ones that are on this other side of the equation. Yeah. I am reminded of a script writing book written by J. Michael Straczynski where he advises up-and-coming writers to write spec scripts for shows that exist now, shows that are on the air now. So, if, like, if you're in the 90s, you know, write a, write a Seinfeld spec script. Write a, write a Friends spec. Have that as part of the stuff that your agent is sending out to try to get you work. Because this early in your career, you're not getting to make your own show. You're trying to fit in with what's already there. And unfortunately, you know, I think that also means culturally as well as, you know, the format of Mr. District Attorney, the television show. I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to try to assign, you know, my speculation to what was going on in Gene's head. He may well have thought differently about this than the script makes it appear, but it had to fit into the format of the show. And, you know, you're trying to sell your first scripts as a writer, you kind of have to fit in with what's already there. So I'm not, you know, I'm not going to venerate him. I'm not going to vilify him. I'm just saying that there is a delicate dance going on when you're first trying to get work in that field. You, you do want to hand in a script that stands out as being good, but you don't want it to stand out so much that it doesn't seem like the rest of the show. And so whatever cultural assumptions 
the show itself may be mired in, either you're working that into the script or the script editor is going to do it for you and it's still going to go out under your name. You know, assuming no one jumps your credit, assuming no one drops in on your credit, but perhaps also a very good reason to be Robert Wesley this week. If you've made it this far, you've probably realized that the title of the show is Mission Log Genealogy. And that's because we're using the Mission Log format from the show that you probably already know. And at the end of the show, what we do after all of our discussion, we take a look at if there is a message or moral or meaning involved in a work that was created by Gene Roddenberry. So this is genealogy. This is the Gene Roddenberry deep dive. And we had a lot to really digest when it came to this first script. But was there a specific moral meaning or message involved? That will be up to Earl to discuss first. This is really more of a common sense thing. And, you know, I I know Roddenberry Podcast isn't exactly known for, you know, podcasts about financial advice. But one thing that's kind of a universal message here is super obvious. It's right on the surface. Debt will eat you alive. It doesn't matter if it's gambling debt or any other kind of debt. So let's let's play the inflation game. Macaulay's 60 buck debt that he owns to Zerat, that sounds like small potatoes. Now let's adjust that for inflation. In 2023 dollars, at least on the particular day that I ran the inflation calculator on it, that $60, that is now $681.84. Those are now exceedingly large potatoes for someone like Macaulay, who's probably not exactly bringing home a lot of money, you know, doing hourly work in the repair shop. But going into any kind of debt, even if it's the institutionalized, slickly packaged debt that is sold and bought as a product in our culture now, it's all a gamble. You're gambling nothing is going to change and that you're always going to be in a position to make those payments and that nothing is going to stop that from happening. That debt that started out supporting your lifestyle, repaying it is now a huge part of your lifestyle. But in this country, in the here and now, maybe not so much in 54, but this shows you kind of how well some parts of this age, you practically can't buy a house. You you can't buy a home. You can't buy a car without going into debt. And the implications are glossed over with all sorts of superficials. Here's a little plastic card. You can have whatever picture you want on it. Kittens and puppies, your home sports team, your fandom. Something that makes debt sexy as a product and distracts you from the fact that you now have a monkey on your back. And sure, maybe there's not a Zerat involved chasing you out to the parking lot to beat you up. But if you get behind, they have got other ways of beating you up without laying a finger on you. The best advice I can offer there is... Make sure you know what you're getting into. Consider carefully if you're going into debt for something you need or if it's something you just want. Because if it's not something you need, bringing this back to gambling, which is in the title, maybe it's best not to roll the dice. Oh, you're so good at this, Earl. Listen to this, folks. This is what a writer can do. <laughs> well, and, you know, this this is speaking from someone who has learned this the hard way don't give me too much credit. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you brought up the uh, the aspect of debt, you know, because, you know, it, it has been 
well-documented with metrics upon metrics that when rotating credit was introduced into this country, that's where a lot of problems for especially middle-class families started because you there was this endless supply of money as long as you were able to make minimum payments. But like Zarat, Zarat is essentially like the, you know, the physical version of, you know, credit indebtedors or debtors that would knock on your door. Or nowadays, you would just basically like just, you know, have all of your information online to be able to lean on you and you put yourself in a, in a position of, you know, of being leveraged, you know, in so many different ways. Yeah. And that's, that's something that I found that was really interesting in this script that, you have these people, you know, they are, you know, of a certain stripe in life that are easy to be preyed upon because of situations like this. And I think that um, Fields, I think, is uh, all of the people at the top, you know, of the business, they're also um, culpable for this because they weren't. They weren't, they weren't managing their business in a way where their employees were being taken care of, you know, for their employees, you know, there was the, uh, what was it? The, um, the admission of, I didn't know this was going on in my company. Well, that's because you weren't paying attention to the needs of your company, the needs of the people, right? So I think that that's where like a character, like a Paul Garrett comes into play here, uh, for something that I found that was really important. You know, from my perspective, I think that when you're looking at this era of TV or entertainment, this 1950s, post-World War II, post-Korean War era. Now, the Korean War ended in 1953. This script came out in 1954. Four. So yeah. it, it's just after the Korean War. But you have this era of TV that's very fertile ground. You know, we're, you're putting out all of these different productions. You're doing it very quickly, kind of like on the cheap. But at the same time, though, I think it's also uh, – it was a strong way for – writers, producers, you know, uh, people in the business to be able to continue this strong sense of United States nationalism, you know, that happened in these last two wars, you know, so you have this belief in the United States at this time, that no matter where you are, or what you're doing, when the when the strong, and in this case, the syndicate, Zarat, Ms. Thornberry, when the strong prey upon the weak, there will always be this righteous and mighty hand of justice, waiting at the ready, to protect and defend those who are unable to protect and defend themselves. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? If only that was the world we live in. That sounds cool. Yeah. And that happens with the different types of entertainment that was going on at this time. So in the 1950s, you had pretty much one of three different types of, of show. You had either the, the combat you know, military, you had the cowboy show, and you had you know, this type of police procedural. Well... And where in some instances on TV or in the movies of this era of the 1950s and 60s, justice was served by soldiers and tanks or by cowboys with six shooters, these affectations are traded in for the post-war embodiment of the 50s modernized hero. In this case, a lawyer whose honor and reputation is beyond reproach and who has the courage to stand up for the common man who sometimes gets backed into a corner because sometimes in life that's just how the cards are dealt pardon the pun don't pardon the pun it doesn't make these people bad people they're just easy prey as we saw with macaulay and thornberry when you look at the bigger picture the battlefield is now society at large the skirmishes are fought in office buildings and businesses and for the most part the warrior heroes are characters like garrett who choose to fight for those who are unable to fight for themselves or who have nowhere else to turn 
Mission Log Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory Players. Our cast this week featured Mark Stadeline as Macaulay and Jonathan Woodward as Zarat. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. And if you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the archives, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. On the next episode, Wife Killer. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shadwell, and David Takechi. This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.